Let's remain standing as we read the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. The gospel of Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old. And a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's a privilege to be here with you today to uh, have a break from moving and work. And, you know, I didn't do that move alone. It was a lot of stuff. We're not even finished actually moving, but we moved most of it. Uh, We had a horde of people this week help us move. And we had that horde of people show up because we're such great hoarders ourselves. So we thank them for that. And uh, there's still a little bit left to move. But uh, my wife and my daughters are actually going to be driving to Michigan today to visit her dad. Her mom passed away in May. And this is uh, a time before school starts for them to see him and encourage him and spend one more summer uh, at their house. So I come here alone, but, um, you know, they are my my family, my, my joy, and uh, you're my family too in Christ. And so though some of us have not met, I know some of you, uh, I'm your brother in Christ and I'm privileged to be here to preach the word to you and to receive it with you. And today we're looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22, where Jesus teaches us what it means to feast with sinners and to fast with saints. The call here this morning is to stop looking to our own insufficient selves and to stop looking at the incompleteness of the world and to follow Jesus, the great 
provider of the heavenly feast, the great provider of the table of God's kingdom. So let's turn away from our insufficiency and the incompleteness of the world and turn to Christ now and feast on his word. Amen? Has anyone heard the story of Babette's feast or seen the movie? There we go. We got a few. Babette's feast, you should check it out. It's a great movie. It's the story of a famous French chef. Jonathan, have you seen it? Okay, I could, I could tell by your, your eyebrows how high they were. It's a great story of a famous French chef named Babette, a refugee from a war in Paris who lands in Denmark to become the housekeeper and the personal cook for a couple of sisters whose father started a small church. And now this church has dwindled to a small group of aging believers, but they're very pious, very faithful, very devout. Their worship was very somber, though, in this small church. It was kind of like a funeral when you'd show up for their worship service. And they preferred fasting to church potlucks. None of the elderly church members knew Babette's true identity as this French woman who came to Denmark, but she effortlessly would elevate their dinners from ordinarily bland meals to another level, culinarily speaking. She was a great cook. Now, just before the 100th birthday celebration of the pastor of this small group, Babette was given a winning lottery ticket of 10,000 francs. I guess that was a lot back then. Not near like the $1 billion, right, of, of the lotto today that I'm sure none of you play. She secretly spends this small fortune on imported and exotic food from Paris to create the most delicious meal that any of these peasants have never even dreamed of. The church members are allured by these dishes they they see being prepared and laid before them as they gather at the table, but they worry that even before the meal begins, indigestion is sitting in with such worry and anxiety. They worry that they might actually enjoy this scrumptious feast so much that they'll sin. And so during the meal, this lavish feast, the grim and suspicious Christians are transformed by this gracious and costly meal, and Babette's feast breaks down the distrust, stirring these people spiritually, these people who would often gossip and backstab each other and talk bad about the world around them, and it touches them deeply in places of their soul they haven't sensed or awakened in many years. Old wrongs are forgotten, ancient loves are rekindled, and a sweet grace blesses the shared table that night, Babette's feast. How can we learn to enjoy the feast that God has laid for us, the costly meal that he's prepared for us? How can we learn to enjoy that exquisite grace with other sinners while also learning how to fast for the full feast of God's coming kingdom that's not fully here? How can we learn to enjoy the feast that we have with each other while still learning to fast for the greater feast to come? That's what we're looking at today from Mark chapter 2. Once a hungry soul gets a foretaste of Christ's perfect love, our self-focus, the insufficiency that we have in ourselves, just appears as crumbs. That won't satisfy us. In this world's table, we'll begin to seem what it actually is incomplete compared to Christ's grace. 
Even a tax collector's table, as we see in the story today, stacked high with Roman coins. This guy was rich in the eyes of the world. Levi begins to seem poor compared to the party that Jesus throws for forgiven sinners in the very house of Levi the tax collector. So let's start there at that part of the story and look at the Jesus feast. The least, the last, the lost, and the lonely find God at the table of forgiveness and fellowship. So the story begins here where we pick up in Mark chapter 2, verse 13, where Jesus went out again on this seaside visit and teaching and preaching. A big crowd comes to him. That doesn't really mean much in the gospel of Mark. It just means people are showing up because they're curious. They're not necessarily disciples at this point, but there's a huge horde of people. And as he passed by, this great crowd of people, he sees Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And we know that Levi was also named what? His Hebrew name was Levi. What was his Gentile name? Matthew, right. Who wrote the first gospel of Matthew. This is Mark, the second gospel. And, and Jesus saw Levi sitting at his tax collector booth. It's like the customs of a foreign country that maybe you might have traveled to or heard from where in the customs booth, the, the customs agent checks you at the airport and says, what do you have to declare? Do you have any items you're taking out of our country into your country? And sometimes in the unsavory other countries you might have traveled to, they might say, now to get through customs, you're going to have to do what? Pay a little bribe, right? Grease the wheels. So you want to take these little you know, items home? You're going to have to pay for them. Well, I already paid for them. Well, you're going to have to pay for them again to me. And so Levi would skim off the top as people passed through. He would collect their taxes. He would say, to pass through this road, you have to pay the toll. And so you're going to pay for it. And so he was a despised character because he was Jewish, but he was taxing his own people and hurting them. And he was making commission off of them. And he could basically say, here's what Rome taxes you now. Here's what Levi taxes you and he would make a profit off the people. So he was an unwelcome person. Tax collectors were unwelcome in the Jewish temple. You can't bring that person to church. You can't invite them to church. We wouldn't let him in this morning if he tried to come in here to Westminster Church. Um, he wasn't welcome in other believers' homes. Why would you want someone like that, some low-down IRS agent in your home? He's taking from you and from your people. And he's getting rich in the name of Rome. He's a sellout. He's a sellout as a Jew to the Romans, the oppressors. He couldn't testify in Jewish court. <clears throat> you wouldn't want your daughter to marry him, of course, even though he was very wealthy. It's dirty money. Jews would have thought of him as a complete traitor, a backstabber, an Uncle Tom. One of Jesus' apostles, whose name was Simon, the zealot, he was very zealous for the cause of like overthrowing the Roman government and bringing the Jewish uh, people back to a place of authority and independence in the land, Simon the Zealot would have seen this guy, Levi, as the complete opposite on the political spectrum. You know, Simon the Zealot was the guy waving the American flag at the Capitol on January 6th. Don't tread on me, right? He's a revolutionary. One end of the spectrum. And then you got Levi, who's like this woke liberal over here just getting rich off the, the conservative people. This is how it would have been played out in the early days. Complete opposites in the spectrum. And Jesus, for some reason, I don't know why he would do that, but he calls them both into the same small band of disciples to follow me. Both are going to have to make some changes in the way they think, in the way they operate. 
but both are called to a new level of thinking. The kingdom of God is the centrality that Jesus is calling them to. Now, let me just say, I don't know if you've ever had a tax collector in your home or someone like a zealot in your home, but Jesus is saying the kingdom invites both to sit not only you know, together in the teaching out on the Sea of Galilee, but to come together in the same home and to be part of the same family. And that's a strange thing. For seven years, I served, when I first moved to Chicago 20 years ago, I served as a chaplain in the Cook County Jail on 26th Street in California in Chicago. And uh, this didn't happen often because most of the guys were locked up that I knew, but one of the guys was released from his, uh, his time there in the jail, and I met him out on the streets, and his name was Rudy. And Rudy had been incarcerated several times over his life, and uh, we, we invited him into our home to have dinner one night. And he said to us, my wife and I, he said, my friends won't believe that a pastor, a white guy, invited me, a black man, a, an ex-felon, into his home to have dinner. They won't believe it. It just doesn't happen. He was such a joyful guy. It was such a pleasure to have him. But he said, this is just so unusual. You wouldn't expect these types of people to end up in the same house, at the same table, enjoying fellowship. But Jesus teaches us that for guys like Levi or Rudy, there's no boundaries between the children that he calls to his table. He says, follow me, Levi. And Levi says, okay. And, and how's that next look in the story? What happens next when Jesus says, follow me? Where do you find Levi and Jesus next? In Levi's home, having a big party with other tax collectors and sinners. To follow Jesus carries a commitment and a cost. Some people, the crowd, as it's described in verse 13, they, they're not the ones crowding into Levi's home with Jesus. It's maybe the people on the margins of the crowd, the outside, the people that weren't at the center closest to Jesus religiously, who found themselves then in this feast in Levi's home. In Luke chapter 5, verse 28, we read that Levi left everything and followed Jesus. He didn't just gain something, he lost something too when he invited Jesus into his home, when Jesus invited him to follow. Jesus met Levi where he's at, exactly where he was. He didn't say, hey, Levi, you need to first empty out your bank account and give back to the Jewish people. Now, th that might be a good idea. Zacchaeus did that, remember? He gave back seven times what he'd stolen. But to Levi, he simply said, follow me. Now, I think Levi would have seen the way that Jesus was operating and known that there was a cost. But Jesus met him right there, and he says, follow me. Now, now Levi then does leave everything, according to Luke chapter 5. He leaves everything and follows Jesus. What did he leave? Well, he left his circle of influence. The world of being a tax collector had its benefits, right? It was kind of like the uh, original mafia. You know, you're taking money illegally from people. And you're making friends along the way who are doing the same things. You guys have your illegal operation, your unscrupulous, immoral operation going on. He was leaving that successful position in the network of people. If, if you're a member of the mafia and you leave, there's a cost. People might start thinking, well, are you going to go tell our secrets? Are you going to go and turn on us now? You're not welcome anymore in our circles anymore. We're not going to help you anymore. So he left a lot to take on these new friends and relationships. He left former friends and associates. People are probably shocked. Levi, how are you following this Jewish rabbi? Seriously? 
Like, you're the last person I would have expected. And, and Levi simply says, well, I'll tell you what. I'm having a big barbecue in my place. Come on over, and I'll tell you the whole story to everybody at once. And, and you'll get to meet Jesus for yourself, and he'll answer all the hard questions that I don't know the answers to yet. This is good early evangelism for a, a new disciple. He says, either way, you get free food out of it. <clears throat> this is going to be a big, a big Jesus reveal party. He's going to explain what he's doing in me and in the world to make all things new. But, but not everybody was impressed with, with this. Not everybody was going to come to this party. The scribes and the Pharisees are the Jewish leaders of that day. And, and they're asking these questions. Why does he eat in verse 16? Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and other sinners? The scribes were the experts. They knew exactly who you should eat with and who you shouldn't eat with. They knew exactly what the rules were. And they thought, you know, we know God's word. We're like the attorneys. We know how to prosecute people that violate God's law. And we know how to make them feel really bad for their sins and condemn them. And then you have the Pharisees, the larger group, the ultra-Orthodox, who kept all 613. Did you know there's 613 laws in the Old Testament? Not just the Ten Commandments, 613. And did you know that 365 of those laws are negative laws? prohibitions, thou shalt not. 365, a negative law for every day of the year. Monday, January 1st, thou shalt not. Tuesday, January 2nd, uh-uh, don't do it. Wednesday, January 3rd, don't even think about it. We have a law for every day telling you what not to do in the Old Testament. There's the positive laws as well, of course. But the Pharisees did something else. They added even more laws on top of the laws. They put a fence around the fence, as they would say. Just to be sure. Just to be sure that you don't sin. To keep far, far away from the possibility of violating the law, they had additional laws. And some of those laws, many of those laws, included food laws. Who do you eat with and what do you eat? The Jewish dietary restrictions and fellowship laws were strictly drawn wider than God's own law of who you should eat with and who you should not. It wasn't just religious people that were doing that in those days. It's not just religious people who do that in our day. We all tend to make rules upon rules that we expect other people to follow. Rules to protect ourselves and to keep us feeling good about ourselves and rules to keep other people away who we don't like or don't agree with us. Many people do this. Many people believe there's a good God who will bless a good person like me if I keep the rules and do good. And what makes me a good person is not necessarily that I'm actually being holy or keeping God's commandments, because, you know, we all know at the end of the day, if we're honest, we don't do that very well. But what makes me feel good about myself being a good person, and I hope that God will see it this way too, is that I'm better than you, or I'm better than them. I'm better than the people out there. So if I draw the lines and build a fence around my life and say, I don't do that, but he does or she does or they do, then I can feel good about myself. Then I can feel righteous, self-sufficient. It might be better than the LGBTQ people, or it might be better than the diehard Trump supporter. It could be anybody on the spectrum. You pick it. Who's the person you feel better than? Because you're not doing that. Well, that was kind of the idea that the religious people back then were doing as well. When the scribes asked Jesus in the previous story in Mark chapter 2, you can read that some other time, uh, the previous paragraph that we read, he asked, the scribes asked Jesus, 
when he healed a paralytic man, a man that was paralyzed and couldn't walk, and Jesus gave him life and strength in his limbs to walk again, they said, not Jesus, how did you do this? This is amazing. What they said was, Jesus, you also told the man that you forgave him of his sins. Now, who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Here they're asking a slightly different question, but the same hearts behind it. Who can eat with sinners like these? <laughs> who can forgive sins and heal a man? Well, well, Jesus, now we're asking, why would you possibly eat with sinners like these? These are the bad people. We're the good people. You should be eating with us. Elsewhere, they call Jesus a, a glutton and a drunkard. They said he, he eats and drinks. He just stuffs his face. <laughs> Jesus is like this party animal. He's just always eating and drinking with people. What's up with this? He just goes right into a house full of sinners and sits right down with them and shares a meal with them. The dirty, nasty sinners that they are. They don't even wash their hands. They don't cleanse themselves religiously. Their hearts are impure. They do all sorts of terrible things. And he's just rubbing shoulders with them, hanging out with them. They're outraged by Jesus' heart of outreach. They're saying, this can't be. This guy can't be holy. He can't be a true Jew. He can't be the Messiah for sure. Look what he's doing. He's not holy. But Jesus isn't concerned about that. He's not contaminated by unholy people like you and me or these other tax collectors and sinners. Don't you remember that he wasn't contaminated when he touched the man with leprosy? He didn't get leprosy as he should have or would have or ritually been unclean in the eyes of the Jewish people. What happened when he touched the leper? The leper became clean. See, Jesus wasn't made unholy by touching unholy people. His holiness that is inherent to himself as God, the most holy one, emanated out and flowed out and healed people. His holiness was contagious. And so that's why he didn't mind to sit with sinners because his healing is contagious to people like us. He says it's not what a man puts into his mouth or who he sits with at the table that makes him unclean, but it's what comes out of his heart that makes him unclean. Why does he eat with sinners when, he, when he's asked by these religious people, why do you eat with these people? What is it? He says, well, in verse 17 of our text today, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Like, why wouldn't I eat with them? I'm the holy one. I'm the healer. I'm God inviting sinners into fellowship with me. I must be with the people who need me and recognize their need for me. He says, it's not the righteous that I came to call but unrighteous sinners. Go look in the mirror, guys. He says, if you don't see yourself as a needy sinner who's hungry and needs to sit at my feast, if you don't see yourselves as a sick person needing a physician to come and heal you, well, that's a sad day. Do we have any doctors here or nurses or medical people? Anyone? All right. Anybody ever been to the doctor before? All right, amen to that. Well, I'm not a doctor either, but uh, if a doctor goes to medical school for all those years and pays all that money, and gets all that training and becomes so proficient at what they do through their residency programs and all that, and then they decide, you know what, that was good, that was nice, but I don't really want to be around sick people. I don't want to really like, catch what they've got. I don't want to get corona or whatever other contagious diseases they might have. I don't want to do that. So I'm going to keep my knowledge to myself and be really smart and maybe help a few people, maybe in my home or a few friends I have, that's who I'll serve. Of course they don't do that. And even the protective clothing they wear, the scrubs and the masks and the gloves, 
they don't wear that simply to protect themselves from disease. They also wear that to protect the sick people from getting their germs. When Christ came to the world as the great physician, he, he didn't come and say, I'm holy and I must stay far, far away from you people so I'm going to draw even wider fences around my holiness and I'm not going to touch you. I'm just going to call you from a distance and say, you need to be changed, you need to be healed. I hope you find the right answer in the medicine you need. He didn't do that. He came in all of his holiness and he came to serve right in the blood and the guts of this world, in the sinfulness, in the filthiness that we bring when we come to a holy God like Jesus is. He comes to love us. He comes to save us. He comes to call us and to have fellowship with us. Jesus prepared himself in holiness not to protect himself from sinners, but to save sinners. Now, he doesn't call Levi in this story, you might notice. He doesn't call Levi specifically to repent, although that is the call of the gospel, and that is the kingdom message. Repent, for the kingdom is near. But notice he doesn't say that as recorded in Mark. What's simply said is, follow me. Now, Levi does repent and leaves everything, and his life does begin to change. But Jesus starts off with, follow me. It's not always the first thing Jesus says, but to this guy, he says, follow me. He initiates. He doesn't say, clean yourself up, turn from your sins, and then I will come and spend time with you. He says, I'm here, I'm near, now follow me. Jesus says, Levi... I'm not going to wait until you get it all figured out. I'm not going to wait until you go through the membership class and, you know, the 201 and 301 level courses of Christianity before you follow me. It's Jesus' kindness that leads Levi to follow. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Does God first come to sinners and say, repent of your sins or else? Well, he does say that in so many words throughout the Old and New Testament. But we, we see in the gospel story, he says, repent because I'm so gracious. Repent because there's something much better than what you're doing and who you're eating with and how you're living and the money you're taking. There's something better than yourself and the world. You're so insufficient. The world is so incomplete. He says, I have all that you need. Now come and follow me. Come and follow me. He doesn't say come and follow the law, although he wants us to follow the law. He doesn't say come and keep the law and once you do that and get yourself cleaned up and become a good Jew, then I'll take you in and adopt you. No, he says, I'm the law. I'm the word made flesh. I'm the good news in person. If you follow me, you'll eventually be glad to follow the law. and You'll be doing all the things that repentance requires. But grace is leading this dance, brothers and sisters. Jesus is leading this dance with grace. And every step of the way is accompanied by grace too. So, so why does Jesus eat with sinners? Well, let's just summarize it like this. Because Jesus wants to bring sinners home. Jesus wants to have a relationship with sinners who otherwise would never come to him on their own or have the, the means to sit with a holy God. Jesus says, I want to be with my people again who turned away from me. So I'm going to come close and call them. Follow me. Sit with me. Eat with me. Get to know me. It's about relationship, friendship, fellowship, belonging, acceptance, love. God wants his people to come home. At this dinner table, relationships grow, family bond, bonds are strengthened. Think of Babette's feast. Old wounds and, and prejudgments and all that is, is transformed at the table of Jesus, the table of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in the Bible is described as a feast. And Jesus says, I'm building my church 
around this table. You know, when COVID-19 hit, you know, many of us, uh, both at church or at work or at school or at home, we, we, we kind of limited our bubble, right? We like shrunk it down to that small group of people. What did they call it? The small groups of people? The little clusters that we were supposed to be in? I don't remember. That's why I'm asking you guys. You know, those five or six people that you know and you can hang out with on the weekends, but don't go anywhere else. Don't hang around any other people. I mean, that was kind of the idea of the Jewish purity laws, right? You take your few people that you trust and you stick with them and you don't contaminate yourself out there. And, and so we've got this mentality that's kind of lingering. I mean, I've experienced it in my own home to some degree where it's like, you just, we're not having people over as much. I want to get back into that. You know, our church had meals, the church that I, I planted that, you know, I resigned from in January. We, we have meals every Sunday. And a lot of folks in the community, they're low-income folks, and they, they would come and sit through the worship service and have meals. But some of them would just show up after the worship service ended to still get that good food. And we'd always make extra knowing that they would come. And, you know, we'd always invite them. Hey, you know, the true meal starts at about 1030. You know, the, the lunch starts at 12. But if you come earlier, we'll give you both, right, the spiritual food and the food for your stomach. Then some of them, you know, when COVID hit and we started to meet outdoors first, and then we came back in, we didn't have lunch for a while, you know, because of the safety concerns. But some of them told me on the streets, well, I'm not going to come back to church until the lunches come back. <laughs> okay, keep it real, right? We're on the south side. Thanks for keeping it real, right? But um, it's, the, it's the fellowship around the table that's so critical. That's why we had lunches every Sunday. That's why we need to open our hearts and homes for hospitality, to go to the neighborhood, to go to where your life takes you and say, this is what the kingdom is about. It's inviting people in to sit with you, to get to know you, accept and welcome them, and call them to follow Christ. Let grace lead the way. Let fellowship be the key. I had two friends in college at Louisiana Tech. I grew up in Louisiana, went to school there, studied biology, uh, pre-med, didn't become a doctor like all of you. And uh, here, here I was at Louisiana Tech University, which also was in Ruston, Louisiana, home of the School for the Blind, Louisiana School for the Blind. And I had two friends in particular, Alvin and Sean, who were both blind uh, friends, and these guys were very funny. And I could tell you lots of stories, but the one I want to talk about today is how uh, every week I would take Alvin and Sean to dinner or to, to lunch at, at Ryan's Steakhouse. Anybody ever been to a Ryan's Steakhouse? You ever heard of that? It's not a really good steakhouse. It's more of just like a bunch of food at a buffet, and there's some steak somewhere there that you never really order because the buffet's so big and cheap. And so we'd go to this buffet, us three college guys, and we would eat. And, you know, imagine Alvin. He's a, he's a short black man, wears sunglasses all the time. He looks like Ray Charles, but shorter and with a bigger pot belly. Okay, so you got that picture in mind. So Sean is a skinny little white guy with a Cajun accent. And we go to Ryan's restaurant together every week. And as we're going there, they're just like, especially Alvin, he's just eating so much food just devouring it. And he's like licking his fingers. He doesn't care about what anybody thinks about him. You know, out of sight, out of mind, I guess. He's just licking his fingers, cleaning his plate. And after a few months of feasting together like this and just hanging out with these guys and hearing their crazy stories, like the time that they said, uh, I, I said, Alvin, why, why is your arm in a cast today? He said, well, I broke my arm. How'd you break your arm, Alvin? Well, Sean and I snuck into the music hall of the university, you know, a couple days ago, and, and Alvin fell into the orchestra pit. And broke his arm. These guys were always up to no good. But we had a lot of fun together. And after months of feasting together at Ryan's Buffet, they started coming to church with me to worship at our local church. And they came regularly. They began to experience the grace of Jesus. It was over those meals that these funny guys who never had a connection to the church began to be drawn into the community of God's family. 
We should long for the day when sinners and you know, fellow sinners will gather with us at the same table with us and begin to call themselves brothers and sisters. They, they might be the lost, the least, the blind. They might be like Rudy, the imprisoned. But they're they're going to be saved by grace just like us. And the way that they're going to get to that grace is to see an invitation through you or through me to Jesus Christ. But until that day comes when we're all sitting at the same table, we're going to feast on just a foretaste. And that's the second point here of the sermon. There's just going to be a foretaste that we experience now of the fullness of the kingdom to come and the fullness of the grace in the table that God will spread for us one day in the new heavens and new earth. So it's a great feast that we can invite people to, but we need to remember that this is only a portion of what will be served in the days to come. Let's look at Mark 18 now, verses 18 through 22 once again. The second half of the story continues with the Jesus fast. So first we saw the Jesus feast. Now we have the Jesus fast. We're going to learn how to hunger more and more for nothing less than heaven's fullness. Learning to hunger more and more for nothing less than heaven's fullness. The Jewish tradition divided fasting, so we're not talking about fasting now, going without food. Jewish tradition divided fasting into three groups. One, after a national tragedy, like the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Two, during a crisis, like a war or a pandemic. We know things about that. Three, fasting would be for a time of personal dedication to God. And those are still good reasons to fast today. But God's law actually only commanded fasting once per year. What was the fast commanded once per year? Anybody know? The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement in Le Leviticus chapter 16 describes the one day when the great sacrifice would be made, the scapegoat would be uh, bearing the sins of the people out into the wilderness, and sacrifice was made for the people's sins by the high priest. But the Pharisees, once again, eager to up the ante, to be more religious than even God himself, right? They said, we're going to add more fasting to the schedule. And so what they did is they started fasting two days per week. Not just two days per year, but two days per week. Anybody interested in that level of holiness? Okay, we read about that sort of situation in Luke chapter 18, verse 12, with the, the two stories of the, the sinner and the Pharisee at the temple that Jesus, you know, the Pharisee said, look at me, I fast twice a week. And he did it not because he was interested in true holiness or private holiness. He did it so he could say, I'm better than that guy over there who's beating his chest saying, Lord, have mercy on me. So twice a week the Pharisees were fasting. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites for making themselves as ugly as possible and as holy as possible. And those kind of went together for them when they fasted. Look how miserable I am. Look how I haven't combed my hair, brushed my teeth, or washed my face because I'm fasting. I'm holy. And Jesus said, you guys are such hypocrites. You're, you're putting on such theatrics. You're doing all this for the outer approval of other people, for the applause of other people. That's why you're fasting. Now, the Pharisees enjoyed trolling other people who were less holy than, than them and saying, look at you. You're not fasting. Look at me. I am. And they even came to Jesus and said, Jesus, you're not fasting. You can say whatever you want about us, but we don't see you fasting at all. In chapter 2, verse 18, these scribes and Pharisees said, hey, the Baptists down the street, you know, John's disciples, they're fasting. And the Pharisees' guys are fasting. But Jesus, you and your disciples, you're just not keeping the law from what we can tell. Or at least you're not advertising it very well. And, you know, Jesus could have said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not putting that on social media. 
And it's kind of a private thing. I, I mean, I did, you can read about in the gospel, and I did have the 40-day fast in the wilderness. That was, that was a pretty major fast. And, you know, I, I did teach that there's only certain types of uh, spiritual warfare that can happen with prayer and fasting. You know, casting out certain unclean spirits only can happen through fasting. Anyway, you know, I do fast, but that's the, beside the point. I didn't come to this world to fast, and I didn't come to this world to preach a gospel of fasting. It's not my main mission. It's not my main trademark as the Messiah. I mean, I do it, and I want you to do it as well, but, you know, I want you to understand what fasting is really about. The Jesus fast is something much more than what the Jewish people had been doing for centuries. Fasting had become, for these leaders in this first century context, a, a, a religious act to feed their religious egos. Okay, they were starving their stomachs, but they were feeding their egos. Self-righteousness. The self-effort. Look what I'm doing to make myself better. Maybe just better than you. Maybe not better than God. Although they were saying we fast more than Jesus. But at least better than other people. So if God gives his blessing to good people who keep those good rules like we talked about earlier... If, if God gives us good blessing to good people who fast even, my question would be then why is Jesus in the story at all? Why, why is Jesus on the earth at all? Why did Jesus come in the first place from heaven to earth if fasting would make us good before God? If self-denial or self-righteousness made us good, why did Christ come? Why did Christ die if all we needed to do was follow the law and not eat with the sinners and just make sure we fast and keep those hard but holy rules, why would he come? Jesus said, sure, I came and called people to deny themselves. I mean, that was one of the first credentials of being a disciple, right? You must, if you want to follow me, you must do what? <clears throat> deny yourself, right? You must do that. It's critical. Sure, I call people to self-denial, but I, I don't want them to rely on self-denial. I don't say, hey, deny yourself, period. He says, deny yourself and follow me. That's what he told Levi. Follow me. It will lead to self-denial. You must deny yourself. You must empty yourself of self-righteousness and all those leaning on your own goodness. But he says, I want you to have joy. I want you to have a feast. I want you to deny yourself of those small things that are insufficient, the crumbs, and I want you to have something better in me. Self-righteous people can become like walking funerals, like those Christians in Babette's feast. Just it wasn't, it wasn't very joyful. It wasn't a fullness. There was an emptiness there. They're fasting, but they're empty, right? They're just shells of people because they're not being filled with the righteousness of Christ in the grace of God. They're full of fear and uncertainty. Did I do enough good things? Am I, did I sin and now is God going to condemn me? Jesus says, haven't you heard? I didn't come to like institute a funeral upon the earth. I came to bring what? A wedding feast. That's what he says here in the story. A wedding feast. That's his illustration he uses. You want me to fast? His answer that, to that question is in verse 19, can the wedding guests fast when the bridegroom is with them? See, in the Old Testament and in the days of the Jewish context of Jesus in the first century, a wedding feast lasted seven days, and there was a lot of eating and a lot of drinking. The father of the bride would pay a lot of money, and that scares me because I have four daughters. And I keep telling them, you know what would be really awesome to show our family unity is to have one wedding for all four of you. So if you time it right, 
that'll work out really well. And my wife and I kind of jokingly, but not jokingly say, maybe we should go buy a barn somewhere in northern Indiana and have our own wedding venue for our own family. It, the cost alone of buying property and building a wedding venue would probably equal out the cost of four weddings. And then we can rent it out and make more money to pay it all off. But in those days, seven days of full feasting on good food, good wine, singing, dancing, long days and nights of parties spilling into the streets. Jesus says, I came for a wedding feast. Now, you don't want your wine at the wedding feast breaking out of those bottles or in those days spilling out of those wineskins, right? You want to keep the wine and save it stored up for the, the, the week of feasting. You want it to be ready. You don't want, Jesus says, new wine to be put in old wineskins. So don't lose the connection between the scripture of the new and old wineskins and the, the wedding feast. It should go together. So you've got the old wineskins that are brittle and dry animal skins that they would put, you know, new wine in, and then what would happen if you did that? They would burst, right? The fermentation of the wine would fill the skins and burst them. So what you want to do is put new wine in new wineskins so the fermentation process can expand with the wineskin and you'll have good wine when the wedding happens. Jesus is saying, you want me to fast? I'm telling you there's a feast. I'm telling you there's a wedding feast. I'm here now. I'm the bridegroom who is you know, prophesied of old that God would come and dwell with his people. His people, Israel, the bride, God, the groom. Jesus says, I'm God on earth now coming to culminate and consummate the, the wedding with my people, my church. From all nations and people like Zac Zacchaeus and Levi and Rudy and Alvin and Sean. That's why I've come. I'm here. He says, you got to stop relying on yourself and your self-righteousness and your old ways of doing things, the old wine. It's not going to work anymore. It's not going to satisfy you. It's going to break and burst. If you're always trying to feel empty and holy and ugly and better than everybody else because you're so holy, that's not going to work. There's no joy there. There's no life there. To say, I fast and you don't. I'm right and you're wrong. Jesus comes with a new wine, a new life. His spirit, the spirit of the living God, cannot be contained by these old, self-focused rituals of religion. Jesus brings a new covenant, fresh, free grace, a free feast for anyone who would come simply by faith and say, Lord, I'm empty. Lord, I'm a sinner. Lord, I need you. I need your grace. I need your peace. We can't earn it. It's freely given. And he's teaching us a new way to fast. Here's the new way of fasting. Jesus says, I'm giving you a fast that will no longer be a burden on you. Now, it might hurt your stomach for a minute. You'll have some growling pains. But he says, there's a new way of fast because it's, uh, it's not about you. The new fast of the kingdom is about me. Fasting is a wedding scenario where the groom is here and you're feasting. And what does he say in verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Now that same word taken away is the word used in the next verse, verse 21, about the old patch being torn apart from a new garment. We'll, we'll talk about that in just a second. But you need to know that when Jesus comes, he says, the new way of fasting is like a wedding where suddenly the groom is kidnapped. I was at a wedding one time growing up. Across the street from my church was the reception. The church, the wedding. Across the street, the reception. After the reception, a woman was hit and killed by a car before the reception began. She was a member of the family. There were a lot of tears at that wedding. A lot of feasting was prepared and planned. We were very happy for the first half of the, the evening because the wedding had happened. 
There was a great sadness and grief that came over the entire crowd of people for the second half. Jesus says, can you imagine if, if the, the groom is with you, there's feasting, there's joy, but when the groom is taken away from you, there's going to be a longing, an ache, a brokenness. And you're not just saying, oh, look at me, I'm so empty and broken. You're longing for that person, the person who you love, the person who came to save you and heal you, and he's come and done a great work, but now he's gone. Jesus says, I've, I've gone away for a while. I'll come back again. But while I'm gone, in that in-between period, oh, you will fast. If you love me, you'll miss me. If you love me, you'll fast. If you love me, you'll turn away from the things of the world because you know they don't satisfy you. You'll turn away from yourself because you know that you don't have what it takes. You know that I'm your only hope. And you'll fast. You'll long for me. You'll love me until I come back. Because I'll love you until I come back. See, fasting is not a burden for the Christian. It's a longing. It's a blessing to pause from the other things that distract us and to remember what's real, what's true, what's eternal. That he will come again. He's coming to bring a feast. Isaiah 58 says, God says to his people, is this not the fast that I choose? What kind of fast does God want for us? He says, I want you to stop focusing on yourself. He says, stop blowing the trumpet, literally. Look at me. I'm fasting. I'm a great holy person. I'm more righteous than you. He says, stop doing that. What you need to do is Create space in your life. Create margin and time in your schedule. This is Isaiah 58. I read it this morning. I, it's there. He says, the true fast is to create space in your life. So empty yourself. Maybe you can not eat today, or maybe you can like stop spending your money on certain things so that you can be a blessing to other people, so that you can welcome them to the feast. Maybe you say, I'm going to fast in such a way that I can then open space and resources to invite others to the feast. This is the type of fast that I delight in, God says in Isaiah 58, that you would open your doors to the homeless and hungry, share with them and be a blessing to them and be a life-giving source to them so they can taste the kingdom grace as well. In verse 19, Jesus says, do the wedding guests fast when the groom is with them? No. Fasting was actually forbidden during the wedding feast. Can you imagine if the father of the bride prepared all that food at his expense and then the people showed up and said, no thanks, we're, we're religious, we're fasting. We don't want the, all that food to go to waste. Jesus says when the bridegroom is with them, they will feast. When he's taken away upon that cross, they will fast. When Jesus came to the earth, he says, I want you to know my joy, I want you to know my life, but when I'm taken away, when I'm put upon that cross, arrested, roughly escorted away from my own celebration and hung upon a cross, a violent loss of the one that the disciples loved. They were bewildered. They were confused. They fasted. Yes, they did. It would have been an insult to fast when Jesus was there and say, no, Jesus, we don't want any more of you. We want to spend time alone doing our own holy thing. No, no, they got all they could of Jesus in the moment. And he says, you'll fast until I come back again. The church will fast and pray until I return. He says, I've given you my Holy Spirit as a down payment, a guarantee that I'm coming again. Fasting is a homesickness for heaven. It's a longing for the love of God to, to perfect us and to be casting out all fear in us. It's that fasting which triggers our hunger for even greater things than anything we see in this world. Jesus says, if you think of fasting 
like the new wine, also think about it like this. And I'll close with this illustration that Jesus gives of the patch in the garment. Jesus says in verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away. There's that word again, like when Jesus was torn away from his church. If you sew an an unshrunk new cloth, cloth with an old garment, it'll be torn away when you put it through the laundry and dry it in the dryer and all that. It just, it will not fit. It will tear away. He says, that's not the way of the kingdom. Don't do it the old way, the way of the self, the way of the world. And when I was a kid, uh, you know, I used to play baseball and other games and I would wear my blue jeans and I would wear them out, right? You go sliding in the home plate, you get a big hole in your knees and your blue jeans, right? And what would mom do? Good moms, you know, they would sew a little denim patch over that hole, right? These days, my kids go to the store and they buy blue jeans with holes in them already. And they don't want anybody to sew a patch on. I, I don't understand. It doesn't make, it's like, I'm a follower of Jesus. I read the, the Gospel of Mark. I say, this makes sense. That, that doesn't make sense. Why are you going to spend my money on jeans that already have holes in them? I don't know. That's what they want to do. And then they're, they're not very faithful followers of Jesus because then they turn as little hypocrites to me, self-righteous little hypocrites that they are, and they accuse me of doing something wrong and unholy and un, un, uncool when I wear my socks with holes in them. <laughs> I paid good money for good socks. Now they have holes in the bottom. And I'm not satisfied with just holy socks. I like to flip them and make convertibles out of them. And I put a little sunroof on top of my feet because I put the holes on top and then I wear out the bottoms until they have holes in them. And then they become rags. So you don't ever throw them away until they're completely destroyed. I don't understand why they don't think that's a cool thing to do. I'm just following what Jesus said. I'm not going to put a patch on these holy socks. They're holy. Let them be. Right? Can you imagine if Jesus would have taught us what fasting is and what the relationship of the disciple to the, the Messiah is and what the relationship of the bride to the groom is, is that what I want you to do is I want you just to cover up with patches all the holes in your life. The emptiness you feel inside. Just put a patch on it. A religious deed. Just cover up with something good. You know, in Isaiah, um, there's this famous verse that we all know, right, from Isaiah 64. If you've been around church, you've heard it. If you haven't been around church, here's what it is. Um, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags, right? Filthy, dirty socks, just socks with holes in them, right? Now, I often thought that just means like if I do righteous things, it still stinks and it's disgusting before God and he'll never accept those righteous things. But that's not what the Bible teaches in the New Testament. It teaches that we do righteous acts and that we will be rewarded for those even. Now, I will say all of our righteous acts still are full of sin. Like there's never a perfect righteous act that you will do in this earth. But I think the true meaning of Isaiah 64 is something more like this, that all your righteous acts are like filthy rags, meaning the people of Israel back in the day were doing righteous acts just like they were doing in the New Testament in Mark chapter 2, to be seen by people and to be appearing as righteous and to cover up their true sin deep inside. There's a hole in my heart. I've got this worn out place. It's just not working. But instead of saying, Jesus, I'm going to fast for you. I need you. Help me. You're my only hope. Instead, they said, I'm going to cover that up with a patch. Of righteousness. Look at me. I'm praying. Look at me. I'm fasting. Look at me. I'm keeping the rules. Jesus says, don't put a patch on the hole 
You can't even use fasting like that. Don't say that fasting is a good work and it's going to cover up the other sins. You have to deal with the deep heart issues inside of you. Fasting doesn't hide our sin, but it emphasizes our sin. It emphasizes our need for something other than ourselves. Fasting isn't going to save me. It's not going to heal me or cleanse me. I need something more. I need Jesus. I'm unrighteous. I'm insufficient. This world cannot satisfy me. Food cannot satisfy me. Sex cannot satisfy me. The games cannot satisfy me. Work cannot satisfy me. Money, it might satisfy me for a moment, but it passes through. It's gone. It's a vapor. It's just a hormonal rush, and then it's over. Only Jesus, with the fullness of the feast that he's offering, can satisfy. Jesus is not just a patch for our problems. He's not just a quick fix to sew onto the hole in your life. He tears up everything. He rips it to shreds. You know, in the Old Testament, when you would fast, you would tear your garments, rip out your hair, put dust on your heads. Look at me. Poor me. Jesus says, I'm going to tear everything up and rebuild it, make it new. Nothing else will work. Even fasting. Even righteous acts. That, only I can clothe you. Only I can be your righteousness, he says. That's why we sing the hymn, clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Only in Christ we're complete. Now, I said I was going to end the sermon here, but I've got a really great story. And I wonder if you want to hear it or not. Do we have time for like two more minutes of a story? It'll illustrate a little bit about our ministry just as I close. So Pastor Robin said yes, I got permission. I've got nothing else to do today. It's the Lord's Day. We're supposed to be taking the day off and just spending the entire day in worship and rest, right? And in acts of mercy. So, as I moved out of my home um, in, in Woodlawn, the south side neighborhood that we lived in for 17 years, you know, as we drove away yesterday, um, I couldn't help but notice some, someone who's been a neighbor of mine for several years. Her name is Anissa. And she's a very close neighbor because she lives right outside of our back alley gate, and she lives in a pickup truck. Her uncle, whose name is Eddie, is like a handyman in the neighborhood. We've known each other for years. He's done some work for us and for the church. But his, his niece, who's named Anissa, lives in Eddie's pickup truck. He parks it on the curb. He rarely drives it around, and she lives in the truck right now. She used to live with him, but she's a drug addict, and she's really just gone so far that she lives in a truck. And, of course, it's been very hot this summer. And I've seen her in that truck smoking and drinking, and she throws her trash outside the windows. This is right outside of our home. And I pass by, and I always try to talk to her. Hey, Anissa, pretty hot today, huh? You want some water? Hey, Anissa, are you hungry? You know, she's always asking for money. You know, I don't give her money, but I try to give her food or drink or whatever. And, you know, I've never seen anybody other than her Uncle Eddie talk to her in all the years I've known her. I've seen Anissa out on the streets for many years. She's come into our church before just to get some food. She's never come for a service or anything like that. But, I mean, I, I kid you not, I've, I've never really had a, like a rational conversation with her. She's usually high. And I've seen her walking around naked. One time just with shoes on. One time just with a, like a fake fur coat on, nothing else. She just wanders around, broken and hurting. And I asked her a few months ago when probably the most lucid conversation we had, where she was like most conversational with me. I, I went up to the truck and I was like giving her some leftover chili or something that I had. And I said, Anissa, like, where do you want to be 
in life? Because I, I don't think you'd want to be in this truck for the rest of your life, right? Like, what happened? Why are you not living with your uncle anymore? And, you know, I wasn't sure if her explanation made a lot of sense, but she told me. And, and, and I said, where would you want to be next year? You know, where would you want to be instead of here? And she was like, well, of course I'd like to be somewhere else, you know? And I just started to envision for her and pray for her in a different way. Like, usually I just saw her as the lady on the street that was just broken and, you know, most people avoid. But I started saying, you know what, with, with the grace of Jesus, maybe just a small act of fellowship or kindness or hospitality, like, who am I to think that God couldn't change her? There's somebody that God will put in your path that you will say, not them. Now, the fence has got to be higher than that, you know. I, I can't let her come into my home. I can't let her come around my children. You know, she'll contaminate us. Jesus is saying, go. D describe the feast. Describe the grace to someone. Give them a vision. Pray for them. Welcome them to the kindness of God. That could change someone like Levi, someone like... Rudy, someone like Alvin or Sean, someone like Anissa, someone like you or me. Let's gather around that feast of grace as we pray now, as we prepare to worship our God in, in fullness and in truth. Let's do that now. Lord, we thank you for preparing a feast long ago. And, and we didn't necessarily even want the feast. We turned to the world, we turned to ourselves. But you've shown us today and you show us regularly that we are not enough. Our sufficiency, our righteousness, it's not enough. You've shown us over and over that the world is not enough. That only leads to more emptiness and more shame. But you continue to spread the feast and cast the vision of the gospel to us that you alone can save, that you alone are worthy, that you alone can cover the holes and the dirtiness in our lives. Help us not to use our righteousness as a patch or a covering because it's just covering filthiness. Help Help us to see the need and cry out for the need for true cleansing deep inside and help us to be emptied of ourselves and to reach out and experience the fullness of the grace of the feast which is to come. Give us a foretaste of that now. Help us to offer that to the least and the last and the lonely, the lost. Help us to continue to look and long for you until the day that you come back to make all things new. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.